market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is, drumroll please, finally out of recession. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is Anirban Mahanti. G'day Doc, how are you? I'm very good, how are you? Mate, I'm feeling recession free. Which is mm. kind of nice. I, I thought that. I, I thought that's how you'd be feeling today. <laughs> uh, to, to be fair, to be fair, the economy. Well, the podcast never in recession, which is the good news. But the economy was, and the headlines got to be for this week that we are. I, would, I shouldn't even say finally out of recession. It was a very short and sharp recession. We're back in positive territory. We'll talk about that. Um, huge week in macro, mate. Interest rates, Chinese trade, overseas stock markets, plenty going on, and maybe the the maybe the more important, or maybe the more more interesting, maybe the more um, consequential news is that the UK has approved the first COVID vaccine. So that's pretty cool. We'll talk about that. We are going to spend, I was going to say a short amount of time, but I guess it depends how long you rant for, on your favourite topic, Australian property prices. Uh, they're not going the way you would otherwise like them to. So I, I have a guess you might have some things to say about that. I have lots of things to say. <laughs> we'll talk about a corporate accounting scandal, Qantas. And if we have time, and I have a decent sense of chance we will, we'll dip into the full mailbag. What do you reckon we start? Let's start. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate, we have to start with the macro and man, is there some macro around this week. So I'll, I'm not sure whether to do it in chronological order or not. I'll, I'll probably get the, let's get the easiest one out of the way first. Uh, interest rates. The RBA on Tuesday said that rates would stay at 0.1%, surprising exactly nobody and reaffirming their views that they won't move on rates. They still won't move rates up. They didn't lock. They didn't rule out moving them down. They won't move rates up until inflation gets to between two and three percent, which, as they say, will require sustained wages growth. And as a reminder to our listeners, in the past, the RBA would look forward and say, "Yeah, inflation might be this by then, so I'm going to start moving now." They've said we're not going to go until we know we've seen it. It actually is is in that target band, and they've said they expect that to be about three years. Um, so that's. Uh, you, I know you made the joke before, mate, but um, the ABA board could almost literally now take the next few years off. I mean, they're still going to do QE and other things, but rates-wise, inflation now, I haven't seen the recent numbers, one, one and a half percent, I assume, sustainably within the 2 to 3% band. So again, sustainable, let's assume they want six months of data. They could they could have 80 months off, couldn't they? Well, I would fire all of them. <laughs> I'd fire all of them and hire myself because, I mean, it's very easy. The one-man board. Well, like it's, all, it. it's very easy, right? As I said, the job is so easy, I could do it. <laughs> It is um, now. When you set the rules well, it's up like been that. Easy for, like, it's been easy for a long time. You know, as I, I've offered to do the job for exactly $250,000, which is a quarter of the pay I just paid to the governor. Um, and, and if you add up all the pay, I think you can get rid of the entire RBA. But you can do, do it on a Saturday afternoon at this stage. You can just, well, yeah, do, do it's it very simple, right? Oh, rates are on hold. How long? Well, forever. It is. Well, that's well, the thing, right? I'm, I'm almost willing to make a prediction Go on. that you know the rates are probably not going up for five years because you're not going to get 3%. Um, yeah. you know, there is no way unless some really mm-hmm. bad stuff happens mm-hmm. <laughs> and something happens to your dollar or you yeah. have like huge inflation yeah. or something like that. You know, there is uh, the chances that you're going to get 3% wage growth is yeah. next to impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, the RBA board can basically go on holidays, um, but yeah, or they could hire me. <laughs> there we go. I, so let's, let's do that. Quickly, uh, we don't spend too much time on this because we've talked about rates plenty in the RBA plenty. Um, our views are rel- relatively well known. I, I'm a little well saying with the new, but not not much. Um, let's talk about inflation though. So of all of the stuff they're going to do, I think you know you and I would disagree with rates being this low and certainly for this long. So we, we're agreed on that. 
What I'm curious as to your view is economically speaking, I have a strong view that 2 to 3% inflation is a number that's been in place as a target for too long and doesn't represent the realities of the modern world. And when I say modern, I'm talking about the last 10 years, not the last 100 years. It, it seems to me that trying to... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a good example here. Maybe it's, maybe it's trying, you know, trying to drive a Tesla with a couple of horses up the front or something. I don't, I don't really know. But there is some sense that they're using a 1980s policy to govern 2020s monetary decisions. And that's that's the thing that worries me. I think, yes, by all means, if, if, the, if the boffins believe that inflation needs to be high before rates go up, I might disagree, but I can accept and, and respect it. What I think is a little bit harder to accept is that inflation target of 2 to 3%. I just don't think it's likely anytime soon. And I don't know that we can accept an economy where normal is rates will always be almost zero because we're never going to get it to an inflation level that frankly is unlikely to happen. Yeah, I think I mostly agree with all of that. I mean, if you know the, the economic data that was released, a couple of things, right? So, I mean, the, the and I know you're going to talk about this, but one of the things that was was clearly visible is business investment is down, mm-hmm. right? And and business, if a business investment is down, yeah. I think businesses are not creating new opportunities. If businesses are not creating new opportunities, there is really no competition for resources or resources being the worker right and if there's no competition for the resources then well how does the wages go up (laughs) yeah there's a a fundamental part of that missing it's fundamental that is is missing now um in in fact in 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 some you know uh, in some different ways you could Mm. say that if we also have importation of uh, of resources into the country in terms of workers right then well, that does fill gaps in needs. It also means that new resources are coming into it. So there's a little bit of a demand and supply thing going on. But I think is, these are structural issues to some extent. And um, it's, the, it's, it's a structural reflection of the type of jobs we are creating mm. and uh, the type of work we are doing. Mm. And, and, and therefore, I think it's going to be very difficult to expect wage growth, right? So, like, I mean, in, if we focused on... So if we focused on high tech jobs, mm. as an example, mm. or if we were a very knowledge-driven economy, mm. you would actually expect wages to go up. Mm. In fact, there's competition for high tech yeah. and, uh, and innovation wages. But if you're creating a lot of average jobs, mm. then there's no competition really for that. And those are being eaten away, in my view, by, mm, by machines, mm. right? So... I think that is the phenomena that, that this is beyond RBA's uh, yeah, remit, and and I think that that's the, this is this is a slow train, right? This is yeah. a slow train that people don't realize is happening, but it's happening, and over a period of. 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it'll be very apparent mm. uh, that that's what has happened. Mm. And I think about RBA is basically, you know, expecting stuff that's unlikely to happen. And even if we start that engine of innovation and, you know, create those sort of jobs and create that sort of environment, mm. um, we're unlikely to, again, get that competition for some number of years. I think that's right, mate. I, I, also, I also feel like the, 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 the wages inflation nexus also assumes a relatively closed economy, right? And I think to some degree, you can get wage inflation without price inflation. You can get price inflation without wage inflation because we import so much of our inflation or deflation. I mean, for, for three decades, we've been importing deflation from the developing world because we've been buying cheaper and cheaper product. I mean, look at the average price of a computer or a TV or something else. Uh, the simple reality is the the economy is made up of such a large share of imports, which is great for our standards of living, by the way. And I think that's the other undiscussed topic here is 
you know, our wages might be stagnant, but our standard of living continues to improve because things we buy get cheaper or we're getting more for our money. But if you think about that component of inflation, the, you know, what happens in Australia for Australian jobs and Australian wages is not as intrinsically linked. I mean, it's, it's partially linked, of course, but, you know, my, I, I would speculate a large chunk of the inflation over the last, or lack of inflation over the last 5, 10, 15 years is largely just imported inflation at cheaper prices where, we, you know, you're not going to get that wage inflation almost by definition because it's not the Australian produced goods that are that are the inflation, I'll say problem in air quotes, because we are importing deflation. The, the, the price of stuff coming out of China, Vietnam, Bangladesh, um, choose, your, choose your country. It's just, you know, the, the price are going down because the, the wages are... Textiles, clothing, and footwear. Um, you know, socks are cheaper than they've ever been through, but from Kmart. Not because, you know, we're getting better at making them in Australia because we've outsourced them somewhere else. So the price of socks goes down. The price of computers go down. People wonder why there's no inflation. It's, you know, it's, there's a standard of living increase that, that's also not being talked about because you can't measure it the way you can measure wage or price inflation. So uh, I'll take a different view on that one. And Go I'll say that some of that is true, mm-hmm. but I'll say some of that is not true. Okay. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So the price of actually, I'd say the price of things have gone up, <laughs> of many things okay. have actually gone up. Yes. So there are some things that are being consumed that have gone down. But mm-hmm. the price of a lot of things that we consume today mm-hmm. that did not exist, there are a lot of things that actually did not exist that we consume more over time. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right. But if you think of the price of a smartphone, yep. right, of an iPhone, actually has gone up over time. Yes. Right. Uh, if you think of the price of um, of a standard, say, desktop or a Mac desktop, right? Mm-hmm. So the things that we want to consume, actually, a lot of the quality things, mm-hmm. their price have either stead- had been held steady yes. or gone up. What has happened, though, is that same amount of money or more amount of money that you're spending mm-hmm. is giving you more things. That's a different right. aspect. Correct. Right. But um, but I, I think, like, I mean, the price of stuff actually even going up or down elsewhere mm. has no bearing mm. on wage growth here. That's, that's because, my point. That's and that's point. your point, right? Because yep. they can go up or down, Correct. but that all that stuff is happening elsewhere. Correct. Right? Correct. And I, I think that's my point is that I, I think fundamentally, mm. that's what I think the economy needs to figure out. Well, what are we doing yeah. Yeah. In, in the global scheme of things mm. to ensure that we have our share or more than fair share mm. of um, of the knowledge or the IP creation, yeah, right? Yeah. So we can dig the ground and create more coal or iron ore and things like that. We can do good iron ore digging, mm. um, but that only helps us so much, right? And I, I think it's the IP side of things, right? So we, um, you know, how much IP creation, brand creation are we doing that is allowing us to then, you know, create those highly skilled jobs here. I like that, mate. I like that. Let's, uh, well, where, oh, do I get it done? I'll hold China off because that's going to be a longer conversation, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Good news on Wednesday of this week, the economy is officially out of recession. And this is one of those, I mean, look, I think, well, I would say everybody knew, but certainly the, the, the average punter, the average pundit, the average uh, commentator who gives these forecasts, I don't think anyone was going to be surprised that the recession was going to be over. Uh, what was remarkably surprising is the rate of growth in the September quarter. Now, notwithstanding, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, notwithstanding that those numbers are now already two months old, almost. No, they are actually more than two months old. The September quarter GDP, so July, August, September, numbers were out. And the growth was originally, the, the, the consensus was somewhere between 1.7% and 2.5%. It was increased earlier this week to between 2 and 3 from those pundits. Again, a big range because it was super unknown. The final numbers, mate, were 33 percent growth 
that gets out of recession with a bullet, a, a really, really fast recovery. Now, we've talked about before the fact that just because GDP growth turns positive doesn't mean everything's okay. We're still coming back from a bigger fall. So just getting back to growth, if you go from 100 to 15 and then go back to 20, you're in growth, but you're miles behind. So no one's claiming that the recessions or the, sorry, the pandemic's over or that the economy's back to normal. But this was a, this was a remarkably surprising print and a sense, I think, a confirmation to me at least that, and remember, don't forget, Victoria was still in lockdown, I think, at the end of that, at the end of that quarter. So it seems obvious to me that the recession is over, short of a massive problem. We might get to that in a second, which might cause a double-dip recession. Um, this was a pretty strong set of numbers, mate, and actually hurt by our trade balance, which uh, actually took 0.3 of a percentage point off the GDP numbers compared to the last quarter. So like for like would have been 3.6%. Um, I don't really have a question or, or really a comment other than really good to see the economy back in recovery mode really across the board. Okay. Can I be the wet bank blanket oh, here? come on. I'm going to be the wet blanket GDP growth 3.3%. Only even you can't find negative evidence. No, no. Come on. So, I'm, uh, so I'm going to say we are the stock market podcast, <laughs> right? Uh, the share market podcast. We are. Uh, and therefore, I almost ignore everything about GDP. <laughs> As I've been actually saying, I have found personally that uh, focusing on the macros is interesting to good to know, mm-hmm. right? But uh, a couple of things I want to talk about. Number one is we have to realize that the economy – is still smaller yep. relative to where it was last correct, year. Correct. This time. Yep. So that's that basically means that there are still people who are hurting. That's number yep. one. Yeah. Uh, number two is that I think the the other barometer to think about, and again, I'm not trying to fault any policy here. Mm. Um, I think the policy is just fine. Um, the barometer to think about is if there are still 1.1 million people mm. on some form of government support for work. Yep. Again, this is a, I keep stressing on this because I think. People, you know, I want people to be realistic and not take, and it's good to take a victory lap, mm. uh, but I want people to be realistic as well. Um, and, and therefore, be able to do more apples to apples comparison instead of doing apples to orange comparison, right? Mm. Uh, because nobody wants to talk about these things. Mm. Um, if we have 1.1 million people on some form of jo- uh, support, mm-hmm. that number really needs to be factored into any form of employment growth and anything else. That, you know, if 1.1 million out of 13 million working people yeah. uh, is a huge percentage, yes, right? Yes. So while I commend the policies that support that is very useful. Yes. We need to re- take that into context, mm-hmm. right? So that's that provides some bit of color yeah. for, uh, for the lack of a better word. Yeah. Number three, I think the thing to think about is this has, I think, largely helped um, the the small to medium-sized businesses, right, which is very, very important. Yeah. And I'm not, again, and I think it's great for those people that has been helped and it's, it's great that a lot of other people are now finding jobs. Mm-hmm. But as investors... What does this mean for investing, mm-hmm. right? Does this mean go, should I go and buy more bank shares? Uh, should I go and buy more mining shares? And the answers to all of those things are well, it, you know, well maybe yeah. not, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think the the so what from an investing point of view is yep. is important. Yes, yep. all of those things, are, but it has not fundamentally changed. I think how I would invest mm-hmm. because while it is good as a society to have these results, which is very, very good and useful, yep. it does not change how one needs to think about investing. And I think that's the point I want, I want to make. I, th- I think, again, there's a double-layered yeah. um, uh, thing to think about. And it, it, it also means that a number of our sectors are still hurting, right? A number of sectors that are dependent on tourism, a number of sectors that are dependent on, for example, like education and um, onshore, onshoring of, uh, for example, students from outside. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I think that again, we need to consider that in the overall equation. So I think when the when the the doors finally open, I think 
then we get to a more like a you know stable state and we'll be able to make more of a comparison with um mm. you know maybe 2019 as it was I like that. And look, so a couple of additional thoughts. So to your point about um, about the government support, I completely agree. The good news during the week as well, by the way, like this is, I'm an optimist, you know that, mate. And we saw half a million jobs, or half a million businesses, I can't remember which, anyway, come off JobKeeper um, on the latest set of numbers that were announced during the week. So the positive there is at least to some degree that support is being wound back and without seemingly, again, these numbers, the GDP numbers are two months old, um, but hopefully seemingly without too much economic damage being done. So if that can be tapered well and successfully, um, high wire job, but if that can happen to your point, hopefully that'll do good things. Um, also too, as you rightly say, the, the RBA had previously said we won't be back to normal, i.e. kind of 2019 levels of economic activity until the end of 2021 in their view. Um, Governor Lowe was a little bit more encouraged after the GDP numbers say, look, it might be a little bit before that, but you're right, we're going to spend another year just getting back to normal and that's something that we really need to be super mindful of. I think that the last thing I, I liked about your point was that the stock market component because I've seen, we've all, you've probably seen data, I'm sure you have, that there's very little correlation between GDP and stock market returns for a couple of reasons. The first is, as you say, it needn't impact on the sort of companies we invest in, let alone, by the way, the whole market. I'm talking about a total market level. We can, of course, take that in another level of granularity with individual stock picking. But um, there's not a lot of correlation, partly because um, the companies aren't impacted the same way the economy is, firstly. Secondly, it's also true that the market should, in theory, actually be a a forward-looking mechanism and the fact the market is up and it, it, it kind of works generally speaking right i think it overreacts on the downside as we saw in march and april but then the recovery in the stock market happened and we'll get to this in a second um well before the economic data is in and that's again the case you should as an investor be looking forward and seeing that economic activity will pick up demand for your company's products will likely pick up and as that happens profits should improve in a, and as an investor in the market supposed to look forward and say oh, i see that coming we'll buy shares now before that happens. And that seems to also have been the case. I mean, low interest rates help, of course, and stimulus helps. But here in the US, there does very much seem, uh, you know, I've had so many questions about the last two weeks in some media comments and interviews and stuff like that. People said, is now, you know, should we invest now the recovery's here? And I have to kind of gently say to them, I just remember I've been saying for months that trying to invest was before the recovery was here, right? Because the market's now up 35, 40%. People saying, should we invest now? It's like, well, yeah, you should keep investing now, but man, the opportunity to invest isn't after the after the good news is priced in. The time to do it is because before you see it, or sorry, before you see the data, but as you see the potential for a recovery and frankly, unusually low and unreasonably low prices, and that's also, I think, the truth. Mate, um, let's, while we're here, I will get to China, I promise, but let's roll in the S&P for a second because it hit another record overnight. We're recording this on Thursday, the 3rd of December. Overnight on Wednesday night, our time, Wednesday day, US time, the S&P closed it yet another record high i don't really have new questions i think i asked you this last week or the week before so it's not really a it's, it's a new observation new reality and again i think to some degree some evidence or at least i'll, I'll call it correlation for causation some evidence to my point of the market recovering well before the economy does anything in those numbers that interest you that the, the, the continued highs in the s&p 500 is it getting harder to find good investment ideas because the market's recovering? Is the market going too far? Are you starting to get mindful of how investors are treating certain stocks? Just your thoughts on on these. And look, the ASX is still not at a, at a high, but it's pretty much at a you know kind of nine month high. That February nineteen high we haven't yet got to, but we're pretty much at the highest level since then, give or take. Um, after a cracking November, we didn't even talk about that. The cracking November we should have mentioned because it was the best November since nineteen eighty seven, I believe, in the US. Nineteen eighty eight here, I think. Um, 
<laughs> the, the, the tide's well and truly in, mate. Are we still okay with that? Yeah, like so. I mean, the the S and P five hundred hitting um, all time highs again. None of that surprises me because yeah. the thing with the S and P five hundred that I think people need to realize is it. If you look at the top companies there, mm-hmm. right? They are basically the cream of the cream, the cream right. of the crop, right. right? The the thing is that unless the world is coming to a total end, <laughs> right? In which case, it doesn't matter what you're doing with your investment. <laughs> Got guns and guns and you, and, uh, you could hide in a cave or you know uh, or uh, go to Antarctica <laughs> or something like that. Unless it's that yeah. those like I mean, if you look at the balance sheets of a company, like a balance sheet of a company like say Microsoft, right, and what it does and how fast it grows and the scale of growth, those are undoubtedly in my mind the best companies on the planet. Yeah, right. Just, that's just. And you can't even compare them. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. you know. I think it's just, it's just incorrect. Um, it's um, yeah. the, the, there is no relevant comparison, right? You can look at the biggest company we've got on the ASX, and look at the biggest companies we've got there, mm. and it it is just a night and day comparison. So I think it's not useful. Yeah, um, and and then you know, if you have growth at scale, like that, mm. they've got. I guess the only question one could ask. And I think it's a worthwhile question to ask: Is how much bigger can you really get? Yeah. Right. And uh, that's a good question to ask. I think I don't have a view on that, but it's very difficult to, you know, it's very difficult to conceptually think that um, in Microsoft, let's say, it's to maybe worth like two trillion US yeah, yeah. Uh, in market cap. If it has to do like fifteen percent returns over the next five years, that's yeah. like a double <laughs> over the next five. Years. That's four trillion. It can, it, does that? Does that? That. Seems large. Well, that's what. So my, my thought was, I guess, at some level, it, it, there's two ways to look at this, right? They are the cream of the crop, as you say. They are the best in the business. All that cost stuff is true. If you told me though, it, so I, I'm going to be devil's advocate here. If you take those companies, let's say there's a dozen of them that are in that bucket of super huge, probably can't quadruple soon. Is that a handbrake for the US market? I mean, we can look at it two ways, right? One, they get there because they're big and great and successful and dominant. On the other hand, you kind of go, that's a lot of ballast to drag around. Now, the Australian market, I, I, I will earn your ire here by referencing some of the best US tech companies with uh, and, and compare them to some of our banks. But at some level, you know, they've got more growth potential than the banks, don't get me wrong. But we've got a very top-heavy market that, you know, the, the ASX 200 is absolutely constrained because of market cap weightings because unless the miners and the banks grow, it doesn't matter. In the US, are we getting towards that same sort of territory where you've got to look at it and say, you know what, the S&P is now a bit constrained in terms of its potential growth as an index. And again, we can talk about other ways to beat it, and that's what we do as a day job. But and I hadn't really thought it through, but just as you make that point, it just strikes me. Hang on, so if that's <laughs> given the fact you've given us that they're massive and they probably can't go to the sky and they're so dominant, I wonder if that's not a handbrake for the rate of growth of the S and P over the next five years. Yeah, so that, that's a great point. Yeah, my, my my counter for that is I'll say look at one of our largest companies, CSL, mm. and guess how much is the price to earnings for that company today. I, you've mentioned this in part, so I won't, yeah. I won't give it away. But you, you, you get yeah, but, but give me, I'll, I'll ask you on air to make a guess. <laughs> Forty-five times, right? So according to uh, S and P Capital IQ, <laughs> it is forty-seven times. Oh, right? To be fair, you've you've pretty much uh, yeah. been talking about this for a while. So, so, so I think here's the problem, right? <laughs> the 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 company uh, CSL is mm. at forty-seven times earnings. Mm. It's in many ways, if you think about what it does, it mm. does blood products. A good company mm. does blood products and vaccines, mm. right? On, on vaccine, it's being beaten completely to the punch by mRNA type of vaccines, right. which are you know show, shown to be very effective. On bloods, there are other competitors like Takeda, mm. which do. So why are Australian investors paying 47 times earnings for that company? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And can you guess how much is Microsoft's uh, price to earnings? Oh, I haven't looked at that. Here's, here's the time. quiz. I will say 23 times. Okay, it's 34. Wow. Okay, that's okay. I thought. So, well, uh, if uh, here's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. The multiple for Microsoft could expand to the multiple for CSL. Right. And you'd get some gains. Right. Uh, Microsoft is probably growing faster than yeah. CSL, so you'd get some yeah. gains. Yeah. Microsoft could open new uh, areas of growth and you mm-hmm. can get some gains, right? So, I mean, all of those things are possible. But yes, I mean, once you get okay. that large, I think fundamentally it becomes uh, difficult mm. um, to grow. But again, mm. I mean, the converse question in my mind is when these companies were like, you know, Microsoft was half the size, we could have said, could it become even bigger? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I think, I, I think there's a class of companies out there mm. which are innovating at such pace that they're leaving yeah. other companies behind. Yeah. That's number one. Yeah. Yeah. And with respect to the S&P's handicap, I think it's going to be handicapped, just mm. like the ASX mm. is, is going to be handicapped. Mm. Uh, but I think the multiple there is, there's at least some wiggle room in the multiple. Oh, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting, I'm not comparing the two at all. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying one versus the other. I'm just thinking broadly, just total rate of return of the S&P 500, regardless of any other index. Yeah, it just over the, strikes me that, you know. Uh, absolutely. I think if you get, if any index gives you very high return one year, mm. or the two years or yeah, three yeah. years, then yeah, you'd expect yeah. that some normalization is going to happen over the next <laughs> few years. Yeah, so, I mean, on average, I would expect lower returns going forward. I don't have, I, I think that is probably the the sanest observation one can make, that right. on average, you're going to make lower returns, right? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, that's the reality. Yeah, I think, like, if yeah. it, you know, you know, if you have had like eleven, twelve percent return this year, my natural instinct is to say, well, you know, next year's return is going to kind of be a little bit lower, right? Yeah, um, yeah it makes sense. Motley Fool Money, financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m. So, let's kind of go back to the biggest issue I think of the Australian economic outlook for me. And first, of all, I'll ask you judge whether that's true or not is this whole palaver with china now you and i've talked about this on and off with the team at the full really so we recorded this last thursday our last podcast the day after that the treasury news broke and then all of a sudden there was some feedback from the government then there was the chinese tweet um which has got well and truly more than enough cover and then our response to it then china uh, effectively dared us to go through the south china sea uh saying there'll be there'll be ramifications if we tried it for our navy mate this is um I don't know. So politics is one part of it. Feel free to opine on that if you want to. But there's some numbers I've seen that the if this goes really badly with China, it could hurt us by up to 6% of GDP. Now, if you think about the COVID recession, I think we, the market, we, I think we might have fallen 7.5% a while off, then bounced straight back. If we... If we, yeah, you know, this goes to its logical conclusion, or, or not, not only conclusion, but one logical conclusion is it starts to impact us for things like iron ore, for example. You know, in itself, this trade war could cause an Australian recession, and I think that's that's the thing that's got my mind. And again, to your point, it doesn't mean we invest differently necessarily, though. We need to be careful of trade exposed industries, to use the jargon. Um, I don't even, again, really even know what question I'm asking. I guess I'll give you the opportunity just to comment on on where. Where where are we with China? What impact does it have on the economy? What impact does it have on the stock market on investing? Just you know, given that this seems like it's getting worse rather than rather than the same or better, it's a it's hard to be optimistic. I'm an optimist. It's hard to be optimistic about the direction this goes over the next six to twelve months. Yeah, so I'm not going to. I try not to be political. Just um, but 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 uh, okay. So one of the things that I find for investing that's useful, and it's I think. I think it's true for life and it's true for anything that we do, which is I think you need to think about 
where you're going to be where you would like to be mm. in the long term yeah yeah right and take the straight. high road yeah, yeah. to get there yeah yeah and i think one of the problems we have often is we are always trying to max so i think this is this is i call the local maximization problem right mm-hmm. we are always trying mm-hmm. to maximize now mm-hmm. today mm-hmm. tomorrow mm-hmm. and not thinking about long term maximums mm-hmm. right and I, I i think so i think we can think of this as an opportunity right mm-hmm. this if we think of this as an opportunity and say okay well we have a heavy dependence um because our economy is export oriented mm. commodity oriented mm. and we export um our commodities mm-hmm. largely to one country mm-hmm. right but then we can we can say or, or a bunch of countries but you know there's there's a heavy dependence because of our, the way our trade relations so there are mm-hmm. a couple of things right mm-hmm. what can we do to diversify our economy that's number one right and, and maybe this is the right time to start right mm-hmm. and not worry about that recession 5% again because all of these things are technical right a recession is technical in many ways right i mean the government could throw some extra money yeah. and you would not have the recession yeah, right yeah. because of the way you we measure recession right because yeah. oh, we, you know we give some support so um i think the way to think about this is what is it there what is it in on our control that we could do number one try to diversify mm. the economy as a whole number mm-hmm. two i think would be to to also see the trends right so we could say for example that you know you know that we're having this huge fight over wine and mm. then in the immediate term this is a huge problem for our wine growers and those people who are businesses and you know whether it's the hunter valley or the margaret river yeah but we could also come back and say well some of this is self created right i mean if you have 30 40% of something being sold at one place and you have no leverage over that at some point you could land up in trouble that's mm. business risk that you're taking right so i don't know like i mean you, you it's a business risk has been taken and now it has panned out may it may not have panned out but it could have panned out that's part of i think in investing would say that's that's you know that's a risk concentration risk right yeah, yeah. and we've got the concentration risk but i think the other thing uh, i guess i'm trying to say here is we should look at what is happening globally and then try to position ourselves overall this is you know maybe pull some policy advice so If you think about uh, I'll give you examples of stuff that I follow. If you think about what's happening for example with um iPad and Mac production. Yeah. Some of that has moved to places like Vietnam. Not moved entirely, but there is new production coming on at Vietnam. There's new production coming on for iPhones for example in India. Right? Some of it, some of that is policy driven, right? Because the Indian government might have said to Apple, we will let you open your own retail stores. So, you know, yeah. to surprise you to know that there's no retail Apple retail stores in anywhere in a, in a 1.4 billion country That's where people lie. there is yeah. no Apple stores. Yeah. The government of India is using that as a leverage saying you want your own stores, we want production here. Yeah, right. right? So, I think there's something that we can learn from that. Is mm-hmm. one is there is movement happening two is in any export relationship if you have no leverage mm. you are at a disadvantage right and commodity export basically means you have no leverage but maybe you can create some leverage for example that you know maybe you need to have some investors that are locally based mm-hmm. right so you know so that it gives you some cushion and comfort that okay if 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 businesses that are you know have other interests in other countries or other countries participants then maybe you don't get affected as badly right i, I think some of these are lessons that i think mm. we can learn from this and we can become better at how we execute uh our decisions so uh, you know i'm not you know faulting what the government is doing i think yeah. there's some there's some uh things we can do better going forward right and i think we should stop worrying too much about okay this is like the end of the world it's nothing is the end of the world never it is the, you know i'm sure there is alternative supplies where we can alternative places where we can send our wine mm. 
there are other markets which are growing and you know maybe that's the way forward mm-hmm. I, I think that's all fair i, I think look I, i'm a treasury one shareholder i think i've said before um I mean, once I was China, we're going at 40% a year, 20% volume, 20% price for for a few years in a row. So I think it's, as you say, it's it's the it's the it's the strategic decision you make of maximising sales at the same time as recognising there is risk in doing so. I don't think I don't think it would be insensible for Treasury at any point to say, yeah, we want to restrict our growth in China to 10% just in case something goes wrong. But it's also mind, you know, it's also reasonable to say, is our business geared up for a potential de- demographic, geopolitical trade impact? And you know, do we have the ability to flex or manage accordingly? I think the example I've given—I don't know if I've given it on the podcast before—Blackmores was similar. They geared up their cost structure to support this growing Daigu trade that then went away. And Blackmores have spent two or two and a half years trying to basically undo the cost structure because they they built a business for you know a much higher revenue. That revenue should have been seen easy in hindsight to say, but should have been seen as either temporary or at the very least vulnerable. And you need to build a business that allows for the fact you want to absolutely make hay while the sun shines. You still want to be, to mix my metaphors, caught with your pants down when the sun goes behind a cloud. Yeah, so so this has been my constant criticism of our larger companies, mm. right? I think this is where I think our executive management teams have failed us, broadly speaking. Mm. Because, you know, you know, like being caught with your pants down when if, you, if there's, a fa- there's a big fine out there, you don't have the money to raise the fine, yeah. right? Having poorly structured balance sheets. This is, I think, something that Australian investors too need to understand. Even super funds need to mm. understand. Mm. That if you're throwing money at companies which have like balance sheets of 10 20 million dollars and you know you're a three billion dollar company it's really poor Mm -hmm. because you're just not in a position to defend yourself right so i think this is something that people need to learn and and to your point right i mean yes you want to make the most out of it but i think this is the exact thing that investors do local trying to be trying to optimize everything now Mm -hmm. right it, and the cost for that is well, if something goes wrong, if everything you know, if everything goes right, it's okay. Yeah. But everything hardly ever goes right, right? This is exactly the rainy day fund. As an investor, as as in, you know, as if, if somebody was asking us, okay, what should we do? Well, we should have a cash buffer because that cash buffer is going to see you through, right, right, exactly. uh, right? So I think management teams. I don't know what it is about incentives, structures, whatever it is, but this is really mm-hmm. poor, mm-hmm. and it is it is there. Whether it's treasury again, I'm going to fall treasury here because you know, hey, you. Want to make make but if you build up your cost structure to take that mm. when you get hit you are like in zombie land for next yeah. three years yeah. you're going to be in yeah. dead land because this is, and at that point you can shout and say well the government was wrong mm. but you know what it could be the government it could be something else yeah you yeah. know storms happen all yeah. the time right as i as i like to say i like to say that you know apple can close its store for a year mm. operations it'll be still fine yeah that is what i call having resilience mm. if you can't operate with resilience you've got problems and as investors we need to realize that and and again as investors what we need to realize that if we are paying high multiples for that then we're making a mistake mm. maybe we need to think about the multiples we are paying right and, and in the long run this works out to everybody's advantage for the businesses because they don't have high PEs to raise funding for the investors because they have lower risk yeah, yeah. Uh, they're better yeah. appreciate the risks right and you know, it sounds like you know I'm being like the wet blanket here but I think this oh, is fu- okay. I'm, but, but this is fundamentally a problem <laughs> know, right I and I think fundamentally if there's a problem if we address the fundamental problem yeah. then as a group we are better off in the long run mm. I think that's right I think and, and your your point I think of highlighting the you know the cash buffer as an individual the rainy day fund or something else I think that's a really really important point and I think I, I will for what it's worth, um, you know, I, I, it's not just the fault of short-term investors, fund managers, and the like. But the desire, as you kind of point out, for that perfection now, 
rather than kind of long-term sustainability, I think is is a, is a real problem amongst corporate Australia. That idea of like, give us the extra dividends now or, you know, leverage up the balance sheet now, return some money to shareholders now, whatever those things are, um, to maximise the, the short-term share price. If you're only a three-month shareholder, you don't care. Yep. If you're a six-month shareholder, you don't care. If you're a yep. 12-month shareholder, ordinarily, frankly, if you don't Blackmores or, or Treasury for, for any meaningful 12-month period, you're probably still okay. It's to some degree that lack of long-term thinking. And it reminds me of um, Taleb's book, you know, Anti-Fragile. Just yep. the very idea of being... I, I won't try and use his words or even my words, but being flexible, being aware, being mindful, being capable of what if the unlikely thing... Now, I don't think anyone should have prepared. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I think it's absolutely true. I don't know that you should have spent 100 years preparing for the next pandemic. I think you know you would have, you would have wasted a lot of money over that 99-year period. That being said, being prepared for something like a China problem is absolutely a more likely, more present, more more you know kind of impactful Issue that I think it's very reasonably prepared for. Yeah, and it's like, and it's, and, and, you know, we can call it the China problem, right? Tomorrow it could mm. be the India problem mm. or the Vietnam yes. problem, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, like correct, uh, correct. Uh, the, the great analogy here will be like take, take cricket, right? Mm. Stuff happens mm. in cricket, mm. you know, now the Indian, uh, the Board of Cricket Control yes. basically decides what happens in they cricket, <laughs> right? So, like, yes. I mean, basically with time, yeah. power shifts right, and you right. just got to be careful about that exactly. and, and navigate that. And and I, I think this, is, this uh, you know, this is the local... Mm -hmm. uh, this is just the I think by definition everybody is always trying to optimize for now and I think that is yeah. the problem yeah, and I, I think it's very hard to get get over but anyways that's I agree I mate that's a nice way to summarize um, uh, speaking of let's, let's go let's move on um, and this is one I, I will just mention in passing because I don't I mean we talked a lot about macro and this is probably just another version of the same thing but it is obviously worthy of mention that the UK has officially approved the very first COVID vaccine to be rolled out globally um, when I say rollout globally, I mean UK's rollout out globally, but the first in the world uh, to have approved a COVID vaccine. And I think these, they're starting like in a matter of weeks. Like it's, it's, it's really soon. Um, Greg Hunt, the Australian Health Minister, has issued a press release in response saying that he thinks our vaccinations will start by the end of January next year. And the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, is on the path for approving it here. The US uh, is obviously working down that same path as well. Um, Hunt mentioned uh, there was going to be 136 million doses across all the different four providers of the vaccine available, which is phenomenal and seems stupidly large to me. And frankly, I don't think we need seven doses each. So I guess there's some. I guess there's something about that. Maybe we're just overbuying in case some of them don't work out or something. Maybe we just committed to everything, which made sense, right? You commit to everything just in case they don't work. If all four work, then it's a nice problem to have to have too many doses rather than not enough. Um, again, I think, you know, from, from my perspective, this brings, I always say brings forward because it depends on what your original assumptions were, but it kind of locks in a better economic year in 2021 globally for mine that the the ability of the world to get back to some sort of normalcy or towards some sort of normalcy sooner rather than later again i went you know it depends what your assumptions are or how long this would take but it, I, it feels and i'm an optimist mate so tell me if i'm wrong it feels like the end is kind of in sight now we're not there yet it'll take a while to come but we can almost say right this was the last step even if it's a long step to getting us back to some sort of normal and economically from the stock market jobs businesses it, it feels like hopefully this is the beginning of the last chapter yeah i think that's about right um 
I just think it's very interesting that the the drug that the British are approving first is an American company from <laughs> Pfizer, <laughs> and the Americans have not approved it. That, yeah, fa- that is fascinating. I think. What do, what do you make of? Do you have a, a thought of that? You, you've like, kind of followed I, the medicine I, I, a little bit. You're not, we're not, you're not a medical doctor. To be clear, to our listeners, we're not giving medical advice, but it does it does seem. I'll say strange. Um, maybe it's surprising. Maybe it's a pr- impressive. Maybe it's too fast. I, I, I've said to you off air, I, I have a little bit of concern um, that the speed of these approvals leaves some potential, you know, minefields unchecked, if I can throw a horrible metaphor together. Um, you know, that the potential that someone's overlooked something in their haste is always something that worries me. Um, not that I'm skeptical at all about the vaccine or, or the process, just that, you know, like everything, the faster you go, the more you rush, the more chance there is of something, just uh, some boxes left unchecked somewhere. But for all that said, how does the how does the UK end up approving a vaccine before the US? I really don't know. I mean, this is, <laughs> I, I wish I knew. What, it's maybe that maybe the FDA, which approves the drugs, uh, <laughs> you know, in the US, is just a little bit slower. Yeah. Um, I did I did read something that mm. you know they've voted thirteen is to one as to who's going to get the vaccines first. So I mean, the, they know who's going to get it first, but they just know which vaccine it is. Yeah, right. yet. Um, but my expectation is both the Moderna. Um, vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine are going to get uh, approved um, in the US I don't think the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to actually get approved in the US oh wow really yeah I don't think it's going to get approved because I I think it would not meet the standards required for um, uh, for conducting uh, trials. Okay, right? so you're saying it's not it's not efficacious or safe, just that they haven't proven it to be so with the size of the trial. Is that, well, that right? Well, so I think the key issue with the AstraZeneca trial is yep. that the best result is via serendipity, and anything via serendipity <laughs> is, is a bit of a... That's not scientifically proven, is it? It's not scientific. <laughs> so it just happened by chance that we have found that that thing works okay. better than the other thing, okay. uh, and that will never, I think, pass master. Okay. If actually... If that gets approved, yeah. if the AstraZeneca drug gets approved yeah. in by the FDA, I would actually seriously start worrying about all of them. Well, that's just so, that's, the so, that's, that's yeah. kind of why I'm, I, I just feel like there's so, so much pressure, political and moral and just goodwill and, and, and desperate hope. I just, I, I really hope no one's cutting corners. Yeah, but I think the, I think the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, the trials have been run really as other trials would have been run. I think mm-hmm. the only thing that you can, you can, the only ding that I can think of against them is that um, the data, mm. like the, the longitudinal data, is is going to be limited uh, by the fact that well, yep. this yep. is the only thing has started. We yep. haven't seen this before, yep. and therefore the longitude. So th- therefore, there's going to be this thing about longitudinal following up. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, that's the only thing I can think of. In otherwise, mm-hmm. in, you know, in terms of having the, I mean, I mean, the key things within running any of these trials is to have a good mix of you know um, people of different age groups, race, ethnicity, and all those sort of things, mm. right? And uh, I think that's also lacking, I believe, in the AstraZeneca um, trial. So I think. My guess would be FDA is going to say, AstraZeneca, you need to run another trial. Okay. I think AstraZeneca probably ex- expects uh, right. that it has to run another trial. That's not going to stop some countries from approving the um, okay. AstraZeneca drug. So if I had a choice, yeah, yeah. I would not take that one. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> and I would be taking the other one. Um, but you know, on the other hand, one could say that the AstraZeneca one is viral vector-based, and therefore yeah. that's basically the standard approach right, to doing... Right, right. So maybe it, it's just it, less unusual, right? It's less unusual, and therefore maybe the lower thresholds. Yeah. But still, um, the good thing about the AstraZeneca, well, so good thing if if it is successful and if it can, if it can be proven, is and without getting we're not this is a medical podcast, but the transportation temperature is exceedingly higher. Is it the Pfizer one's going to be transported at minus seventy degrees Celsius? I mean, not that it can't be done, but if you think about some of the global ramifications here, the ability to 
to be able to distribute that in some developing parts, developing parts of the world where there is simply less access to very, very, very low temperature refrigeration or it's got to cover big miles, that kind of stuff. You kind of hope that as well as, uh, well, obviously, if they can fix the, the, the transportation problem for fires, that'd be probably the best, that'd be the, the A-class solution. But absent that, you know, some way to more easily get the vaccine to, to a vast, vast sway that the world's population needs to be found one way or the other, right? Yeah, absolutely. So so I think the thing with the AstraZeneca is uh, the, the Pfizer one has, what, negative 70 degree Fahrenheit that or something? Cr- like that. That's yeah, crazy. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Moderna yeah. one is, I think, slightly better, negative okay. uh, four or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, four, okay, that's not bad. It's not bad, but I mean, again, think about, like, I mean, if you want to distribute a vaccine to <laughs> rural India, right, yeah, yeah. it's going to be really hard yeah. to do it at minus right, 17, right? right? Africa, it's yeah, almost, yeah, 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 it's yeah, almost yeah. impossible. Yeah. Um, and which is why, like, for example, the largest vaccine manufacturer, Serum Institute, um, has tied up only with AstraZeneca because, oh, I mean, because, okay. well, that's the one that yeah, you can actually sense. distribute, right? So, totally. uh, but, okay. but, I mean, you know, the thing is that the efficacy, even if it's like 40 to 60%, mm-hmm. that's basically the similar number that we get for the flu vaccine. So it's not bad, right? Yeah. It just needs to be proven that that's the number or other mm-hmm. other trials need to be run yeah. um, to achieve that. Yeah. And, and that's okay. I like it, Matt. That's good. All right, let's let's. <laughs> oh no! So so we've been very very mindful and thoughtful and 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 uh, you know we, we've we've discussed this lot this beginning of the podcast in in lots of civility and, and fine language. No raised voices. Now I'm going to ask you about property because SQM research this week, in fact, only today again we're recording this on the third of December, has come out to say they expect prices to go up between five and nine percent for property property prices five and nine percent. In 2021, the combination of the repeal of some responsible lending laws, higher consumer confidence, rates stay low, the economy starts to recover. On one level, if we didn't know what the prices already were, the concept, the logic makes sense, right? People are feeling better about stuff. They're more likely to then get back to buying houses. And so relative to this year where there's been depressed activity and you know fewer people buying because job keeper, job seeker, out of work, not sure, all that kind of stuff. It makes logical sense that you would see relative to the same level of supply, increased demand, and that should push prices up. So personally, I see no reason why that shouldn't be true. I have a feeling though, you may or may not have a different view on that. You certainly would have an issue with the starting point. Well, well, yeah, here's the... Well, <laughs> um, I, you know, if I was just being selfish, mm. I would say, hey, this is great for me. I'll take it. Because <laughs> um, you're a homeowner, right? Well, not just a home, but I've, I've bought something and I haven't sold something. So if the prices go up, <laughs> I, it's like the best best of uh, both worlds for How me. How is it right? fair that the biggest property bear I know is actually going to make money on rising prices? <laughs> well, but I am actually happy for the prices to fall <laughs> yes, and I make less money right. uh, because I think that's just the social good uh, for all those people who are out of housing, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. But, I think this is bizarre. It's, you know, if it's, it's driven by, well, as you said, if you remove responsible lending laws mm-hmm. and you become irresponsible, of course <laughs> things go up. <laughs> so, so I, I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it, prices go up until they go down, mm-hmm. uh, and they can go up a lot. They can be irrational for a long time, um, but the 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 bigger the irrationality, the harder the fall. <laughs> and when that happens, right, right. don't tell me that I didn't warn you. <laughs> I think I think that's a nice summary. I'm not going to add anything to that. We'll, well just leave it there. That's a very short summary. You in the meantime, from Doc in the meantime, I'm okay to make some profit <laughs> off this. And if anyone wants to buy a really really overpriced property, Doc's happy to sell you at, at some inflated price. Give us give us a call. Yeah. If you're a big fan, you want to donate some money to Doc. <laughs> give, give, let me know via email or or via the socials. I'll give you those details in a second. Uh, Doc Ladder Zero to his asking price and see how we go. Uh, if they do, man, I'll go your halves. How about that? 
Okay, uh, right. as long as uh, you know you can charge a couple of hundred grand extra, <laughs> I'll give you half. There we go, deal. Lock it in. All right, um, mate. Uh, let's uh, we take a bit of a turn here. We don't spend a lot of time talking about the arcane nature of accounting, but Freedom Foods, a, a business that is a recommendation of Motley Fool Share Advisor, has been suspended from trade for months, and during the week, kind of told us why, or at least we knew roughly why, but gave us the absolute. I was going to say black and white. Maybe I should say red and white because there was a lot of losses there and red ink generally uh, associated with, with losses, financially speaking. This was not un- unexpected by the time it came out, but it was one of those scenarios that really seemed to come from the clouds when the shares were first suspended. We saw the CEO resign, the CFO resign. Apparently, there's legal action being considered. So I'm not going to go too much into who did what to who, but they had to write down $536 million from memory, maybe 63, 500 and something million dollars worth of profit because they had to restate their financial accounts for the 2019 year and then release them for 2020, which showed some really, really ordinary outcomes. And this is, to some degree, a bit of a warning. Now, I've got to say, as so I recommended this stock as an investor. When you see the founding family still having the controlling shareholding in a business, you kind of assume that, they have their hands some degree on the tiller that you're investing alongside them, a la a James Packer or Jerry Harvey. You might not even love everything they do necessarily, but it's rare to think, hang on, if I, you know, if, if these guys have got maybe even billions of dollars, certainly hundreds of millions of dollars tied up in this thing, hundreds of millions tied up in this thing, it's fair to assume they're keeping an eye on the shop. They're doing what's best for the long-term business. It's, it, is a, it is a very reasonable, I think, um, vote of confidence. They seem to have been completely blindsided by this. And what happened was the 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 business and the CEO and CFO as the responsible officers, I, I will be very clear, I'm not accusing anyone of anything, use an accounting policy that in hindsight, the auditors and new finance people at the company have deemed remarkably aggressive. Now, I don't want to get lost in the arcana because that's nothing worse for a podcast than boring numbers and, and accounting rules. But effectively what they did was they did a thing called capitalizing expenses. Now, it's a really, really appropriate, normal, reasonable thing to do. If I buy for my business a, uh, what's a good example? A car. And that car's got a useful life of 10 years. I can depreciate that car over that 10-year period. So I spend 40 grand up front to buy, a, I was going to say a Commodore, a Camry, whatever we buy. And I know it's going to last me 10 years. So the, the, the accounting rules are very clear, right? It's a 10-year asset. It's going to be worth zero at the end. So I can expense $4,000 a year. So I take the, the life of the car, 10 years, divide the cost base. I have a $40,000 asset. So on the on the balance sheet, I have an asset worth $40,000. But on the expense line, I don't say, well, that car cost me 40 grand, so I'm going to expense it all this year. You're, you're supposed to match up the expenses with the useful life of the asset. So it costs me four grand a year in use to use that car. That's kind of how it works. In this case, when Freedom bought some factories, some machinery, some other things, they basically capitalize all the expenses. And apparently the auditors have found that that most of those expenses that were capitalized, i.e. like the car, should have actually been expensed directly instead. So the machine that was supposedly going to deliver over 20 years actually wasn't that long and should have been expensed up front. That's the very, very basic version of this. And all of that restatement, all of those expenses that all of a sudden were like, yeah, you, can't, you can't call that an asset, that's actually an expense, put it on the, on the P&L, cost them half a billion dollars. Your thoughts on, on where we are, how we got there, what it means as an investor, how you think about this sort of outcome and, and what it says to either your or other people's investing? Yes, I haven't followed that uh, the accounting that closely because, you know, um, 
I didn't know that company that closely. Mm, mm. Um, I know the brand. Uh, I see it every day on the on the shelves in Coles and Woolies. Um, I know the brand. We sometimes use the, their branded stuff. Mm. Um, many cafes use their yeah, their stuff, right? So again, like uh, without knowing the details, maybe you know these details, uh, you know clearly. Like I mean, to me, in my mind, there does nothing sounds wrong in mm, saying, mm, "Well, mm. I've enough. I've got an asset, and I want to expense it over right, a period right, of time." Right. Sounds sounds about right. Yep. Right, and you can, you know, sometimes you are able, you know, assets under a certain value could be, you mm-hmm. know, um, expensed off, written off this year, you know, pay lower tax if you're doing that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes you write it off over a period of time. So, again, the other thing to rem- to keep in mind is this: their books were signed off by auditors. Right, it was mm-hmm. not that the auditors did not sign right, off their books. Right. The board then has signed off those yeah, annual yeah, reports. Yeah. So. That's why it's a surprise. Yeah. Orders are looking over this thing. The people who run the business have still got their shares. They weren't trying to dress this thing up and then sell their shares and run away. They are still shareholders. They're wearing the loss. They're probably going to have to put more money in. It's it's one that really sh- – you kind of wonder how it happened. Yeah. So I I have a theory about these things. Again, it, it goes back to what – you know. I was saying this is the mid-cap, big, large-cap problem we've got. Mm. I think um, maybe people in business are in a hurry. Mm. And it's all like, you know, why do you need to buy so many things? You need to buy so many things if you're in a hurry to grow very quickly, right? Mm. Part of that is just the lack of organic growth and therefore you're trying to create growth and therefore you're, you're trying to become, I guess, um, creative, mm. <laughs> maybe for the lack of better word. Or, mm. or maybe things mm. just happen because, so fundamentally, another way to think about this is when was the last time a new brand yeah. in uh, in cereals and milk mm-hmm. been hugely successful yeah right yeah. so so I think there are fundamentally there are certain types of businesses that are just going to be okay they're not going to be great businesses right mm-hmm. and when we tr- when we try to make them great <laughs> often the chances that they're not going to be great and there's going to be some problems I think that's that's what I think of these things right so you know a couple of other, like you know, my personal investment examples. Um, you know, there used to be a Mastige brand that had, mm. we had looked at before, and again, you know, we thought this was going to be great, but it's very difficult to be great in cosmetics. Right. Like, how many right. new cosmetic brands show up <laughs> that become great? Because it's very yeah. hard, right? Yeah, there's, yeah. you know, there's all these other yeah. huge brands that are present. Mm. Competing against them is extremely hard, sure. and it's all you know, you're fighting at the fringes, right? So I think fundamentally, maybe that's the problem. And the problem is that if we expect too much from these things, um, it becomes, I think that's where the problems start, right? Because again, you're not a big brand. You can't have the best um, management teams running these companies because, hey, why would you come and work for them? It's that sort of thing, right? It's yeah. it's not, that's what I keep banging on innovation because for that reason, because that's where you can create new things. Mm. You can't create new things in serial. You can create a new, you know, a new paper printed package right, for right. cereal. Yeah, yeah, you could yeah. call, you know, this print, you know, yeah. milk. <laughs> well, I mean, you can't create new milk. It comes from cows, well, right? I was uh, too. Well, <laughs> I know. That's very, very rare, though, exactly. right? That that's is very, very rare yeah, yeah, right. that you can create an A2, right? That's right. That's right. It's very rare. It doesn't happen that often. Um, so I think mm. that's my larger lesson is that you know maybe we have to be careful about mm, mm, mm. up and coming brands that maybe are not going to come. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair, mate. Um, yeah, it, it's a <coughs> it's a challenging one. I think. I look, I said I recommended this stock. I don't own shares. Some of our team do, including my boss, which is not a good thing. At least I think he still owns the shares. Um, it's one of those situations where 
I'm tempted to put this down as the exception rather than the rule in the sense that for all your points about the broad profitability, I think it's fair, but the the, the half a billion dollars worth of accounting mistreatment <laughs> or alleged seemingly mistreatment, restatement, call it what you want. I don't want to, again, um, make allegations here, but the fact that it had to be restated, it's cost them half a billion dollars and a capital raising coming, some debt raising coming. You kind of think, well... You know, how, how likely is it you can see these things coming? Now, maybe, again, hindsight will show some smoking guns, and that's fair. I think there's other, there's other things too, mate. There are, you know, there have always been circumstances where um, uh, we, we use the outcomes to determine what we think or should have thought at the time. And yet there'll be other businesses that go through similar things that come out the other side. Uh, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like every, you know, every successful entrepreneur startup versus the ones that don't, st- don't the ones that succeed versus fail. And you think, well, okay, you, in hindsight, you say, oh, that obviously was going to win because of X, Y, Z. And these are obviously going to fail because of ABC. Um, I, I'm not, not saying that Freedom did the right thing at all, but, but I do wonder how many other successful companies that we don't talk about have got similar or had similar at some point accounting policies, for example, right? And traded their way through that. I mean, in Freedom's case, if nothing happens, profits continue to grow, these machines get eventually expensed anyway, and they get lost, they're lost in the footnotes of history, it never comes up. Not to say it's okay, but I do wonder how much, how many false positives or false negatives there are that are floating around the place that, you know, we, we, we see or, or bake in too much into the outcomes. Again, not to, not to, not to defend it at all, uh, maybe, as I said, in, in hindsight, there are ways to, to have seen this coming or at least have been more mindful of it. Um, but I also think there's, there is some element of Monday morning quarterbacking about the ones that go wrong that we don't necessarily see in the ones that manage to overcome some of these questionable accounting policies. I guess the other thing is that I think what I think that the, maybe the key thing here is exactly as you said, right? The sort of expensing mm. happens. This is mm. there's nothing abnormal about this right, expensing, right? right? <laughs> yeah, and the right. write-offs that are happening now, yes, yes. that accounting write-offs, yes, really. Yeah, that's right. right. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. So I think the main issue is not actually none of those things are probably the main issue. The yeah, main yeah, issue really yeah. is that the I think as investors, if we focus too much on the profit line mm. and we think there's profit, but actually what we really need to focus on is how much cash is there, which is I like yeah, keep banging true. on about the cash. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the main thing. If yeah. your business doesn't have cash on the balance sheet, to to run mm. run down, you've mm. got problems. Mm. Even you will have problems at some point, right? If you if you're burning too much money and you don't have money coming in somehow, mm. then mm. you've got problems. And if you don't have cash flows, that uh, I mean, it's hard to run away from the fact that you have cash or you don't have cash, right? Yeah. And I think that's where, yeah. if if there was no issue with cash, you could just continue, yeah. right? Yeah. And eventually, the other end, nobody would even know about anything, right, and maybe right, it's not exactly. even a problem, right? Yeah, 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 so it. I think it's it's ultimately, I think again, yeah. how we focus on, you know, okay, we want to focus on profits, and mm-hmm. we want it's again cultural to many extent. We want dividends. Yeah. yeah we want yeah. frank dividends. We want profits. We yeah, want these things yeah. to grow, but we're not going to think about the the mm-hmm, the yeah. um, the balance sheet line and think about how much cash is there, how much debt is there, yeah. right? Because too much debt and very little cash, you got problems eventually. I mean, that is almost. It's like the Australian housing problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and that's, I, I think that's the other thing is that's why I, you know, to your point, uh, somebody growing out of this stuff, right? A lot of this, a lot of this half a billion dollars worth of write down is effectively startup capital being put in new businesses that, as you say, eventually gets expensed through, and even even on a cash flow basis, it's may it's entirely possible in five years' time the money that was spent and arguably misaccounted for, in other words, the accounting was the accounting treatment may have been wrong in, from the sounds of it, if in five years' time that stuff's gushing a heap of cash because those investments actually start to pay off. We're, we're looking now at a, at a halfway through story, which is we bought these machines, we built these factories, we started these production lines, we've done all this stuff. It's subscale yet. So yes, we are burning cash, but at some point, if that you know if that investment is actually justified by the cash flow at some future point, we might look back and go, 
Well, it was just shuffling deck chairs between two points, but this was either a terrible idea or a wonderful idea or somewhere in between, but yeah. it's not going to be decided in 2020 based on a restatement of the accounts. It's going to be decided in 2025 when either it has a brand new, as you say, you know, long life milk line or cereal line that's, that's doing gangbusters in Thailand or China or New Zealand or Australia. Um, and yet, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of. I feel like we're just we're having these judgments mid conversation, and and rightly, like if it's, if the if the accounting is wrong, it's wrong. It's wrong. It shouldn't have been done. So I'm not excusing it for a second. But the so what? I don't think we necessarily know the answer to that yet. Yeah, like uh, you, you know, uh, almost on the same page, right? The only mm. only thing that we're debating really here mm. is, I think the focus it has been. What flipped in the accounts, right? So yeah. when the accounts came out, the what yeah. flipped is well, last year was a profit. Right, right. Actually, right. it's not a profit; it's a loss. Correct, correct. Right, and again, that is basically all about how investors are thinking about how investors, the board, and management are thinking about the company and its long-term opportunity. Right, exactly. we, you know, well, how and and the whole whole thing is well, how did the company flip from being profitable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, from not be, but the the fact remained it was not cash generative then. Correct. Yes. And it was not cash generative now. <laughs> That's right. Now, that has not That's changed. Right. That's right. Fundamentally, That's right. the only thing that has changed is from an accounting point of view yeah. went from generating a profit to not a profit. so I, I think you know that's a really good point. so that, that I think that's why I keep banging on like I have just realized over mm, time mm. that how important it is to think about balance sheet mm. and it's one of the most underrated things that we you know it almost comes oh yeah everybody wants to talk about revenue growth mm, mm. everybody wants to talk about profits mm, dividends mm, mm. But I think what's important is that you need yeah, to have some balance sheet yeah. and you need to be generating cash, <laughs> yeah. right? And and I think those are the things that matter. Yeah. I guess, true. one last thought, point, just, just for a bit of education for our listeners, and we won't spend too long on it, but I, so I completely agree with that and we are on absolutely the same page. What I think is worth considering though is, and as you say, you, you, know, you instinctively are, are saying cash matters, but you're putting cash in context. So you're not, you, you know, uh, the... It's possible for business, you know, to back to my example, it's possible for business actually losing cash for a couple of years while it spends a fortune on a new machine or a new contract or a new whatever it is to generate future cash down the path. And I think there's that's where accounting should be helpful, right? The accounting is supposed to be helpful if it's done right to show people what of that cash flow is invested for growth and what of that cash flow is not coming back. So if you're spending money on raw ingredients and that's cash outflows, then you're not going to get that back. If there's no investment in that, you either sold the product or you didn't. You either made a profit on that product, a cash and an accounting profit on that product or you didn't. Uh, that on the flip side, if I, well, I mean, take take the personal balance sheet, right? If I go and buy a house for, let's say we're close to sitting, let's, let's call it a million bucks to make my life easy. If I go buy a million dollar house, my cash flow for that year is minus a million dollars. Does that make me insolvent? Does that make me stupid? Well, maybe it makes me stupid by a million dollar house. That's a different question. Um, but you know, the the, the P and L of of my of my that year uh, versus the cash flow statement of that year are very different. Right, I, I spent a million dollars. I got a million dollar property, so I bought got an asset for it. Cash flow was still minus a million. My balance sheet would show zero because I swapped cash for, for property, right? And so that's where it's important. So cash is absolutely king, as Doc says, super serious, super important. But the accounting statements are supposed to, and this is why I think why it's important that we really hold freedom to account and other companies to account is they're supposed to show, like, did I go and waste a million dollars on, you know, alcohol and drugs or did I buy a property with that? Because the million dollars are going out is still the same cash flow outcome. The question is, what did you get for that money? Is it going to be productive over the long term or did you waste cash and you're not going to get it back? And I think that's where both those statements together should really help to inform that and where the differences are. That's where the, that's the value of people like Doc and hopefully myself put some, you know, quality and usefulness back into those statements to help our listeners, our, our readers, our members understand. Okay, so we know that's happened. What does that mean? And is that a useful or a useless use of that cash? 
Yeah, I, I think th- those are all. I, I think we we broadly agree as much as you know that I'll call that ninety nine percent agreement. You know, one percent disagreement that's is always that's very healthy actually. <laughs> it is. All right, mate. Well, we're almost finished. I want to. I've got one. I've got one full mailbag question to ask, and this is an important one, Doc. So no pressure, but you hold Dan's girlfriend's financial life in your hands right now. That sounds very, so no very pressure, that no sounds pressure. like a lot of pressure. <laughs> so here's a question from Dan. Dan says, firstly, I love the podcast. It's informative, entertaining, and great value for money. It had better be, Dan. It's bloody free. Anyway, Dan says, thanks for answering my last question, which you may remember was about US shares and the New Zealand tax implications. We talked about that and the fact that Kiwis have to pay a effectively like a, a, a kind of funds under management fee if they're invested outside Australia and New Zealand. Anyway, he's, he says, by the way, it was actually nice to hear two experienced investors struggling to come up with a clear answer and validated my conundrum, which is all good. All right. So he says, finally to my next question. Here's, here's where it gets serious, Doc. I've been investing for a year now since receiving a finance book for Christmas. Good man, Dan. Since then, I bought three to four other finance books and joined The Motley Fool. I've learned a lot and plan to buy and hold good companies. Well done. Here's, here's, the, here's the big one, Doc. My girlfriend, Bella, g'day, Bella, however, has not read these books or listened to The Fool, so believes that investing is the equivalent of gambling and that I should keep my money in the bank. I've talked about buy and hold good companies and the history of stock market and the terrible interest rates, etc. But I can't convince her. I even offered her, I even offered to buy her some Disney stock. So here's where it gets serious, Doc. My final option is to hear it from the experts. I will get her to listen to this podcast. Can you explain to her why investing is not gambling and why she should be investing too? Thanks for answering my question. Hashtag overseas fool. Hashtag across the Dutch. Do you like the way I did the Dutch thing? He said ditch, but I'm doing the Kiwi accent. Say so Dutch. Across the Dutch. Across the Dutch. Dutch. All right, mate. Bella, thank you for listening. Thank you for suffering through Dan's desire for you to listen to this podcast. And my apologies, we left the question so late in the end of the podcast. If you listen to my, hopefully he's fast forwarded it for you at least until we get you across the across the uh, across the line on this one. So, Doc, investing. I mean, now my old man used to say investing was gambling as well. I don't think I ever really convinced him either. That was a while ago, of course. He's been gone for a while. But it's not an unusual concern. Bella's right to perhaps have absorbed some of the more extreme stories that the general population hears about investing. If you're not paying attention, you hear about the Enrons going broke and the you know, uh, uh, you know, know, high-flying businessmen who, who waste it all or go to jail or whatever else. The, the, the general public story is not a good one for investing. Why, for Bella... Is investing not just gambling, mate? Well, investing is, is definitely gambling. Oh, geez. if is oh, if okay. So, if, so, so, hang, hang on, Bell. Don't yeah. don't, don't, so, don't so press Bella, stop just yet. So, Bella, <laughs> investing, <laughs> I agree, is definitely gambling. <laughs> if um, you're buying stocks and selling them, like you know, you're buying them, selling them quickly, you are trying to get in and out. Um, you're doing that over a short time period. You're you know uh, you're doing it with money that you need tomorrow. Uh, which again means that you're going to buy and sell mm-hmm. uh, very quickly. If you're doing any of those things, uh, then investing is, you're not really investing in the first, first instance, but mm-hmm. you know, putting money in the stock market or share market uh, at that, at that form is not what I would call investing. But if you want to partake, in my view, the, the best way for us, or, or for myself at least, ordinary people mm-hmm. like me, to partake in the excellence that human brain creates, the mm-hmm. excellence that human brain produces, the uh, and all the productivity gains that come out of it, all the wealth creation that comes out of it, 
the best way to partake in that is to invest, right? Because if uh, there's going to be one genius called Steve Jobs who's going to come up with the iPhone, I didn't invent the iPhone, but I can partake in the benefits that the iPhone has created, right? right by investing in Apple, mm-hmm. as an example. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's the that's the reason to invest. And and as people create new things, great things, new services, new ideas, new products um, that improves the lot for the world, changes the way we live. I think. Um, you know, wealth is created, and and the way to partake in that wealth is by investing for the long term in in some of these things. Nice, like that, man. It's nice and short and sharp. I won't be able to go anywhere near that short. Um, so here's the thing, Duella. Thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, suffering, Dan. Um, I'm sure Dan's a lovely bloke, by the way. But uh, sometimes listening to podcasts can be boring. We hope it hasn't been. We hope you've enjoyed it so far. If you've listened to any of it, and if you haven't, then that's okay. Just listen to this bit. Uh, or go back and listen to Doc's bit, of course. The my, my most compelling answer to you, Bella, is Dan's comment. He's already shown you this, so I'm going to restate it um, to support Dan and also to, to give you what I think is the most compelling version of the why invest answer. And that is that over the last couple of centuries, well, over all of human history, humans find ways to improve our lot. Everything from better ways to fence stock through to better ways to grow crops through to better ways to make cotton famously the spinning jenny was the the machine that kind of ushered in the industrial revolution into the sewing and and kind of um, uh, materials industry uh, right through to the machines and devices that we use today including as doc says the iphone so the humans have always wanted to improve our lot we've like look found found better ways to do stuff as the industrial revolution took over the company became the source of most, not all, but most of that innovation, right? The Steve Jobs who starts a, a computer company because he thinks he can make a better, better looking, easy to use computer. Um, the the people at CSL who decided as being spun out from a government agency, but then who decided to try to find bigger and better and more popular ways to help people who needed blood products or vaccines. Um, cochlear as another post, post-university kind of invention. Um, BHP, someone went out west New South Wales and decided to try and find some silver and that that story took off from there the 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 need and desire to a improve our life and be at a selfish level and I don't even that a bad way but you know someone says I can go and make some money if I do this thing I can find a better way I don't know what industries you guys work in um, for us the Motley Fool we we are making money our business is profitable uh, and we're doing it by helping we think our listeners investors readers actually do better with their investing. And if they do, they'll stay with us and pay us money to, to hang around and get our next lot of advice. So all those things are examples of why businesses succeed. And the good news is that over time, the power of that has generated massive amounts of wealth. If you look at the increase in standard of living over the 20th century alone, it went up something like six or tenfold. It was something ridiculous. Um, because we found better ways to do stuff. And most of that was driven by companies and people who are seeking profit for themselves and hopefully in most cases, improvement for society to go and do that. Now, that's all kind of feels motherhood, right? Except the result is, as Dan's already told you, and Dan, if you haven't yet, please Google Vanguard Index Chart 2019. Um, 2020 should be out, actually. Do 2020, either way. Whichever one you use. Um, and just show Bella the, the ups and downs of that chart, right? Sometimes things go down, sometimes they go up. Stocks are volatile. As Doc says, day trading, short-term trading, super dangerous. That is absolutely gambling. Um, individual stocks can also be individually risky. But if you look at the history of the market over time, it is the net result of all of those activities I've just talked about. And I, I what I will say to you, what, what convinces me is, and by the way, I'm, I was an investor, so I joined The Motley Fool. I've not joined in some admin capacity and then decided I have to go and sell this stuff. I literally, Doc's the same, we, we were investors before we joined. We believed in the power of it before we joined The Fool, so we're not just talking our book here. Um, 
the, the, the amazing compound power of investing is just huge. So yes, and frankly, honestly, we're individual company investors. If you don't want to, don't. If you want to get started, if Dan's going to buy some Disney stock, by the way, take it, mate. It's free. Um, but if you, you know, to get started, buy buy an index ETF. Dan will tell you all about those. Um, index ETF just gives you the whole market return. And the question really for you is, is do you really think after more than a century of profitable growth of our biggest and best companies, that's going to stop all of a sudden for any given reason? And you might have a reason that, that you think that's true and that's fine. But the reality is that you're betting against history. If you don't believe that the stuff that's got us here will get us to the next place the next places right the ongoing compound returns you're going to get by investing are just phenomenal and i think that's again look at that chart look at the 30-year chart go back even further dan you can jump on the vanguard website actually do a um it's a interactive one that goes back even further um the the sheer the simple reality is the best companies in the world tend to be listed on the stock exchanges and they tend to do better than average over time and that tends to create a massive amounts of wealth over time and i think if you don't want to invest in real stocks, you don't want to buy and sell, then that's cool. Completely cool. Let Dan do that. Just buy yourself an index ETF. Buy the S&P 500 ETF. Buy the NASDAQ. Buy the ASX 200. Buy the NZ50. NZ um, whatever it is that you feel comfortable with, just let the, the the kind of, you know, the power of human ingenuity, I think you call it, Doc, don't you? I do. Let that drive your financial returns. I am very sure. I can't give you guarantees because I'm not allowed to and I never would. But I'm very, very comfortable. My mother-in-law's entire um, retirement savings are in shares. My entire out of my house, financial assets are in shares, not because I'm trying to ramp shares, but because I genuinely believe over time, the long-term value of that power of human ingenuity, to use Doc's phrase, um, will continue to see us get better as a society. And when we do, as society improves, so look, look at this way, I'll finish with this. As society improves, and it will, because it always has, and unless you think this is the end of it, which you might, but you know, I don't think that's likely. As it does, there's a very, very, very good chance that listed companies will continue to at least get their share of that gain. And so if you've just simply got the same size of a bigger pie, you're winning. If those listed companies grow in that pie, then you're getting a bigger slice of a bigger pie and you're winning twice. So there you go, Bella. Hopefully I've convinced you. If I haven't, then I'm sorry we've done our level best, but uh, Doc and I have given it our best shot. That's why we think you should continue to invest. Mate, I reckon we're done. Yeah, yeah, we done. hope you've done you justice. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, do it via the socials. Jump on Twitter. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. And the Fool's account is at The Motley Fool AU. If you're on Facebook, I'm Scott Phillips Money. And The Motley Fool is The Motley Fool Australia. Surprise, surprise. And if you want to jump on Instagram at TMF Scott P or at The Motley Fool AU. We're not yet on TikTok. We might soon be on YouTube. But you can also get us via email, and that is info at fool.com.au. Our wonderful member services, Fools, will pass that on. And we have some member email questions on, well, I'm giving it away now, Doc. The very special Sunday mailbag episode, which is coming up in a couple of days' time. So Special regular. Special regular. <laughs> get in touch with us via the, via the socials. Do all that kind of good stuff. And in the meantime, have a great weekend. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.